Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, you can open it to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. Today uh, and next week, the topics that we're going to cover, I would say, are critical um, for us as a church as we move forward in the book of Romans. And, and they're critical to honestly having a biblical worldview. If you're someone this morning that, that wants your worldview to be shaped by the Bible or what we would even call a gospel-centered worldview, if you want to understand how to better love and serve the people of this city, you need to understand Romans chapter 1. If you want to understand what's going on in our culture today and some of the debates and topics that we have and some, some of what's going on in our culture, you need to understand Romans chapter 1. I, I would go so far as to say that if you want to really understand the Bible and mankind and if you want to, if you want to understand really humanity, right, and what it means to be a person, you need a good grasp of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and Romans chapters 1 through 3. These are foundational truths for the Bible. And so as a church, we want to love our city well. We want to love our neighbors well. We want to serve people well. So we have to dive into books like the book of Romans. And in particular here, this week and next week as we finish Romans chapter 1. So big topics that we cover this week and next week. Stuff, light topics like atheism and agnosticism. Easy stuff, right? Um, idolatry and unreached people groups, sexual sins, homosexuality in particular, are all addressed by the text that we're going to dive into this week and next week. These are all things that our culture has lots of questions about, debates about, confusions about. Um, and as a church, if we're going to faithfully know what it means to follow Christ and study his word, uh, we have to deal with these topics as we come to them in the Bible. Today we're going to see, this morning, uh, the real push, the urge of our text is this. We all have a problem. It's the same problem our neighbors have. And our neighbors share our problem. We're all in the same boat and it's a sinking boat. We have all sinned against our loving creator and are deserving of his just wrath. And we're without excuse before him. Now that might not be what you wanted to hear this morning. When you combed your hair and brushed your teeth, let's all hope, uh, in coming to church, right? As you got ready this morning, you, and maybe you were thinking, I'm, I'm really hoping for a real pick-me-up. But let me tell you, there is very few truths so much more important that we need to hear is understanding where we stand before God, where our neighbors stand before God, and understanding humanity. That we are not only created in God's image, but that image, we have, we have fallen, and that image is marred in us. And so we're going to be talk, tackling some interesting topics this week and next week. And today, really focusing on that problem that we all share called sin. We have all sinned against that loving creator, deserving his judgment. And that is a problem. Because God is holy, because God is just, and because we are sinful and have broken his word. Now, if you've got a, broken his word, if, if you have a loving, holy, just God and you have people that he has made to worship him and glorify him, as we'll see here in Romans chapter 1 this morning, and we have sinned against him, then that obviously would be and is a problem. Now, what do I mean by sin? It's always important from time to time to not just assume that. What do we mean when we say that three little word that makes some people nervous, sin? I mean this, that there are some thoughts, ideas, choices, and behaviors and attitudes that are offensive to a holy God. I don't get to decide what sin is. You don't get to decide what sin is. That would not be a just way or a fair way for us to determine right and wrong. 
uh, we believe that there is a higher power, that there is actually a person, there is God, right, who has determined what sin is. It's the things that are contrary to his word, contrary to his character, contrary to his purposes. Now, people in general, we don't like to hear about sin. It's not a fun topic. In fact, this week someone sent me an article from the New York Times called, the title of the article is this, Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. I would find that hard, but the lady, uh, I get more illustrations about sin really from raising children than anything, but the lady that wrote this piece is someone who was raised in, she was raised in a type of Christian context, okay, just let's put it that way, and now she's an atheist, and it was actually, as I read the article, I wasn't angry, I was actually very sad, it was kind of a depressing article, but her daughter, they had been at a restaurant or something, and her daughter had overheard a conversation from someone else, and, and the term sin came up, and her daughter looked at her mother and asked, what's sin, and she began to realize that she had been raising her daughter without that concept, but she said this. She said that her and her atheist husband have decided to make their own moral code. Uh, that she's not raising them according to the moral code she was raised with, that there's a God and that he is holy and that, and that when we break his law that we sin, but instead that they have their own moral code. That they, ha they believe in right and wrong, but it's the sins that they think are important and not the biblical concept of sin. Now, here's the deal. I'm not here to pick on that writer this morning. I would actually just want to point out that every single one of us, myself included, have all been guilty at one time or another of skirting the issue on sin. At some point in our lives, in different ways, we kind of find ways to do what she's doing there. And it's not truth that sometimes we like to hear about or talk about. But what God says, not what I say about sin, is what's important. I don't get to pick and choose the sin. And I don't get to pick and choose the consequences of sin that are laid out here in Romans chapter 1. Now, last week, when we looked at Romans chapters one verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we were looking at the good news, the gospel revealed. This week, it's the bad news, wrath revealed. And to fully appreciate the good news, we have to see how bad things really are and how dire and dire need we are of the good news. This week, Paul is going to show us just how sinful we are, just how without excuse we are before God and how none of our excuses hold up. And it's why... I mentioned the card earlier. We're going to come back to this. It's why you, we're doing this Who's Your One campaign where we're each praying about who God would press upon, impress upon our heart that we would be striving to reach with the gospel this year. We all have, probably have more than one, but at least one person that we're working towards praying for, sharing the gospel, trying to lead them to Christ in 2019 because the mission that we face is urgent. People are sinful. We are sinful, and God is a God of wrath. And so that makes... Sharing the gospel, not just a nice thing to do or a good thing to do, but an important and urgent thing to do. So look with me at Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verse 18 through verse 23. Romans chapter, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. It's also on the screen for you. The Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were, were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, the Apostle Paul, here in verse 18, that first sentence we read, many would say lays out what would be the header, the subject line, the big idea of what would remain of all the way through the end of chapter 3. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, in Romans 1.16, he tells us the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That anyone who believes it can be saved, have their life changed, can be made right with God by the gospel, can be made righteous in God's sight. That God actually takes our sin away and covers us with his righteousness when we believe the gospel. And you say, well, why would that be so important? And Paul says, well, let me explain that to you over these next few chapters. Now, you might read this, in, and I used to read this, and I would think, why does Paul say they so much? They're unrighteousness. It's been made plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Why all these out there pronouns? What is Paul doing? Well, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul is addressing two groups that existed in Rome. The Gentile Christians and Gentile people and the Jewish people and that had become Christians. And what Paul is going to do in chapter 2 is he's going to focus more heavily on the Jews and show them how they are sinners. And in chapter 1, he's focusing on the Gentiles, which is us, and showing us how we are sinners. Now, Paul was, was a Jew. Uh, 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 a Jew who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, obviously, but he, he had that Jewish foundation, right? That, that Jewish ancestry and Jewish faith that he, had, that he had come from. And so he says they, because he's pointing out to us that all of us are sinners. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, both Jew and Gentile, they, the Gentiles, we would say we or us, and them or they, the, the Jewish people, all are in need of a Savior. That's Paul's point. And the word here that you see translated wrath, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We, ugh, people kind of, what is that about, right? It's the word also can be translated anger, the anger, the wrath of God. Now, it's hard for you and I to accurately comprehend what all this word entails because I, we, we think about our wrath. Uh, we, we think about our anger, and our wrath and our anger is almost always tainted by sin because we are fallen. It's hard for us to even get righteously anger without unrighteousness creeping into it. That's just how flawed we are. But God is untainted by sin. His wrath, his anger is a righteous indignation towards sin with no flaws or error or sin in it whatsoever. God is not a hypocrite, right? See, when, when God says, I, I'm a God of wrath towards sin, we can't look at God and say, yeah, God, but you, right? Like, I can look at you and say, hey, man, that right there is sin. And you might look at my life and say, yeah, pastor, but you struggle over here. So it's easy for you to call that sin. What about your sin? But you can't do that with God, right? God's perfectly holy and perfectly just. And so when he, when he expresses wrath and anger and judgment towards sin, we can't point the finger at God. A key word here is all. He says his, his wrath is aimed at all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God hates sin, all sin, all forms of things that are not right, all forms of things that are not godly. And we are, in fact, sinners. I've never met someone that claims to be perfect. And that key word there, all, tells us it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or how you were raised. We're all in that same sinking boat. We're all sinners. There is no sin that is okay with God. All sin is evil and wicked to God, and all people are sinners in the eyes of God. And we deserve the wrath of a holy God. Now, 
Let's pause for a second. Before you get this picture of grumpy old God up there that's just storming angry all the time, and, and you think, well, is, is that the way we're supposed to picture God? Let me remind you of something. For God to be loving, he has to be wrathful. For God to love, he must hate. You love and hate. I love and hate. You can't properly love anything without hating. Let me explain. I love my kids. I love my wife, right? I, I cherish them. They are precious to me. I'll do anything I can to protect them. Therefore, I hate anything that would harm them. In fact, you and I can be provoked, stirred to righteous anger and indignation if someone hurts or harms people we love in an unjust, purposeful way. Not because we're irritable, grumpy, and hateful. No, because we love someone. And in the same way, listen, Paul... God is without sin, Paul tells Paul wants us to know that God loves his people. In verse 7, he says, he says, he tells us that God's people are loved by God. And the apostle John tells us in 1 John that God is love. God tells us back in the Old Testament that he is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And see, God is not tainted by sin like we are. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. And he's perfectly loving. Therefore, yes, both God's all of God's holiness, his justice, and his love demand that he be a God of wrath and that he hates sin and that his justice demands that he judge sinners. And his love demands that he love us. And so it, while we look at this as contradiction in our fallenness and the smallness really of our minds, it's all perfectly in sync with God. And he is holy, he is just, and yes, he is loving and now, the Bible speaks to wrath in a couple of ways. There's, there's a wrath of God that is to come and a wrath of God that is, that is right now. One day, the Bible says, God will judge sinners for their sin. Colossians 3, 6, the Apostle Paul says on account of these, talking about certain sins he's previously listed, he says the wrath of God is coming, right? It's something out there that's coming. In Revelation 20, 15, John tells us, uh, he pictures this scene right at the end of days. He says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A picture of God's wrath and God's judgment against sin where he punishes sinners. But Paul here is not talking about just future wrath. Notice the wrath of God is present tense revealed. That was first century when Paul wrote this and that's 2019. It's a present thing. In John 3.36 we read, in the Gospel of John, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's already there and it stays. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that if you haven't believed on him, you're condemned already. So there's a sense in which God's wrath and his condemnation towards our sin is already here and already present. And we'll talk about this next week, but Paul gets to that in Romans chapter 1. He tells us how God's wrath is being revealed. He says, over and over, God gave, gave sinners over to their sin. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. In other words, man's continual and persistent pursuit of sin is a judgment from God. That is a way in which God's wrath is revealed here on earth. And the fact that we enslave ourselves to sin, and he allows us to do that. He says, you want it? You can have it. Now, Paul says... Our that by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth, he says there in verse 18. And he'll spend the next couple of chapters showing how we do that, how all of humanity has suppressed the truth of God and deserves the wrath of God. 
And Paul is calling every single one of us to account. All of us. And the word suppress uh, it can also mean restrain or to prevent. It's the idea of holding back. It can even mean to control something. Uh, because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned that very first time, we all have this thing called a sin nature. We're all bent and broken, and we lean towards sin. We, we, we are tainted by sin, and, and we, are, we sin because we are sinners. We are inclined towards it. And to suppress the truth in that sinful state with our unrighteousness means more than simply to deny facts. See, truth is meant to be, in the Bible, to be believed, to be cherished in the heart, to be applied and to be obeyed. It means, as the New Testament says, to be walked in. We're to walk in the truth, applying it to all of our life. The truth about God and the truth of God is meant to inform everything about our lives. And we have a tendency, though, Paul says, humanity does, Gentiles do, we all do, to suppress that truth. We suppress that truth when we refuse to believe what God says is true. We repress that truth when we ignore God's truth or fail to apply it to our lives or we fail to obey it properly. When we mock it, when we twist it, when we are hypocrites with it and we choose and pick and choose what we'll, what we'll walk in. We suppress the truth. We're controlling. We're, we're restraining when we try and control it and manipulate it by watering it down, we suppress the truth. When we fail to deny, or excuse me, to do anything, to deny it by doing anything other than walking in it, and believing it, and cherishing it, and applying it, and obeying it. Think about it like this. My wife is always trying to get me to drink more water. Right? Maybe you're one of those people that just loves water, and you're drinking that appropriate amount, which they tell me is like 12 gallons a day or something. It's a ridiculous amount of water that you're supposed to drink. And I get it. We're mostly water. I get it. I get it. I need to drink more water. And she's told me that sweet tea and Coca-Cola do not qualify even though water is in it. And I figure, you know, I act like a filtering system anyway. But, but you're supposed to drink more water. Right? And I, I know that. And I know water is good for me. I don't need a speech on how good water is good for me. I know water is good for me. I know I should drink more water. If I refuse to drink as much water as I know is good for me, you know what I do? Technically speaking, biblically speaking, I suppress the truth. Not because I don't think water is good for me but because I'm failing to appropriately apply that knowledge throughout my life. Now, here, here, here's my point. That's what we do with God's truth. We don't just say, there's no God. That's just one way. A Baptist who grew up in church, was baptized at eight, takes communion once a quarter, right, serves on committees, is a pastor or a deacon, can suppress the truth every bit as much as an agnostic or an atheist. We just suppress it different ways. It's any way that we don't allow the truth to dictate and dominate our life. We try to control it. We try to restrain it. We try to prevent it. And that manifests itself, as we'll see throughout Romans 1, in multiple ways. And Paul, in these next verses, shows us exactly how we suppress the truth and why we really deserve God's wrath. And God is just in pouring out his wrath on sinners if we remain in our sin. And I think to better understand God's wrath, we need to understand these three things, okay? First of all, we need to understand that God has revealed himself to us. God's wrath is not the only thing revealed from heaven. God has revealed himself to us. In verses 19 through 20, Apostle Paul says, we, what can be known about God is, is plain to them. God has shown it to them, to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, so we, all of us, are without excuse. Paul says, what can be known about God is plain. Why? Because God has revealed it. People can and should know that there is, number one, a God. 
God has not only revealed his wrath, he's revealed himself, and he's made himself known. Primarily, he's speaking here through creation. We call this natural revelation. God's invisible attributes, Paul tells us, like the fact that he is all-powerful, the fact that he is God, have been clearly perceived. It has been made known in such a way that we know. We know. The things that have been created and made by God reveal something about God. Paul says this leaves mankind, me and you, even Gentiles who are without the law, without the prophets, and without the Old Testament, it leaves us all without excuse. Now, Paul wants us to know this, that you can go outside at night and look up at the stars and the, the vastness of the galaxy that you can see and know that there has to be more behind that. You can look at a sunrise and go, someone must have, be behind this. You can look at the ocean and its vastness and know someone bigger than you must have made that. You can hear a bird sing and know that by its beauty and the way it's orchestrated and how complex even a chirping bird is, that something is or someone is behind that. That You can stare at a mountain and watch clouds roll by over it and your heart be led to wonder about God. In 2019, some 2,000 years after Paul wrote this, we understand more of the complexities of creation than even they did then. We understand the complexities of an atom and matter. I believe our knowledge of the scientific world, despite what some would have you think, have not made us less accountable to God. Paul, I believe, would tell us that it's made us more accountable to God. Because we say, oh, we know so much more now. And exactly. And it, and it points us to a creator. His fingerprints are on his creation. I remember the first time I saw an ultrasound. Our first son, Cannon, was in there, and I remember seeing that little ultrasound, and he looked like a, like a little jelly bean, and he was just jumping around every which way. He was moving. He hadn't stopped. And he was like the size of literally like a tic-tac at that time, but he was moving and jumping, and I remember, I remember hearing the heartbeat for the first time and just how strong and how it sounds, like you're caught in a hurricane. And you just know there's something bigger going on here. This isn't about like something, something, something we did, right? Oh, you hear people say that sometimes. We made a baby. Well, God worked through natural means, but don't misunderstand this. God is doing something here. God is at work here. Paul's point is that God has revealed himself to the point that you and I have no excuse. We can't look at God and say, God, I couldn't tell you even existed. How was I to worship and obey you? We know. Even certain things about right and wrong are just a part of natural revelation. There are some things that we just kind of instinctively know are evil. We can get twisted on that sometimes because we're so fallen. But that, that's Paul's, Paul's point here. To the point that in, the psalmist said in Psalm 14:1 that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So someone might ask, why are there atheists? Why am I an agnostic? Are you saying I'm lying? Right? It's, it's, it, you say it's made known. What, what? Here's why they're atheists. Here's why there are agnostics and the like. The same reason that there are a host of other sinners under heaven. The same reason I sin, the same reason you sin. Because we suppress the truth. And that's just one way to do it. We refuse to believe and apply and obey what we can see is true. That's how fallen and broken we are. In fact, we are so wired to suppress the truth, we do it without even necessarily knowing that we do it. Our sin nature, our natural self is like a, a computer that has been infected with the virus, been designed to work one way, but the virus is infected and it just doesn't do things right anymore. And although we are engineered to function a certain way, the virus of sin 
has so infected us that we do not do what we were created to do. In fact, sometimes we refuse to even believe there is a God at all. The atheist and the agnostic's problem is not that, that they love science too much. I just have too much of a heart for science to believe. God is not afraid of science. Your, your problem is my problem. Like me, you're a sinner that suppresses the truth. And if you have a friend who's an atheist or an agnostic, you need to know that. It's not just about a scientific debate. You need to know what's going on in their heart. God says they're suppressing the truth. They might not even realize it. They, their problem is not different than your problem. They're not in some other boat over there. We're all in the same sinking boat. It's just another form of unbelief. They have the same issue, and here's the key. They need the same gospel. In fact, in Psalm 10:4, the psalmist says, all the thoughts of the wicked are, quote, there is no God. In other words, the natural inclination of the sinner, even if we believe there is a God, is to behave and act and think like there is no God. And so whether you're a real atheist or a practical atheist in the way you live your life, both are forms of unbelief. And this verse helps us understand why we take the gospel to all peoples. People ask, what about someone who's never heard the gospel? What happens to them if the gospel never gets there? What happens to that man, right? Some 30-year-old man living across the world, and, and he's never heard the good news about Jesus. What happens to him there? Who do you think Paul is talking about? Why do you think we have missionaries? Why do you think we have people willing to die to get the gospel to them? Because they need the gospel too. Because Paul says all of us are without excuse. With the light we've been given, right? We have rejected what we've been given. Some have been, some have been exposed to more truth about God than others, but we've all rejected whatever we've been shown. That is what our sin does. Every one of us is without excuse. Default mode for humanity is not saved. It's dead. It's spiritually dead before God and in need of life. And Paul is building a case here in Romans 1 that our lostness, our rebellion against God is not God's fault. It's on us. Our unbelief is not God's fault. Our sin is not God's fault. Our atheism, our agnosticism, our sexual sin, our idolatry is not God's fault. God's godness is on display, but we've suppressed it. Here's the thing. Natural revelation, what we get from creation, is not enough to, is not enough to save us. It's only enough to make us accountable before. It cannot reconcile us to God. That's why the gospel is so urgent. Number two, the second thing we need to understand. So God has revealed himself to us. Number two, we have rejected God in our hearts. So God has revealed himself to us, right, through creation. He's made it. We can know there is a God that we should be worshiping. And, and there are certain things that are just kind of known. But we have rejected God in our hearts. In verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. This is our story, not just some story out there. This is the story of humanity and particularly those of us who were born outside the promises, so to speak, and born, were not Jews by birth or raised that way under the Old Testament. Paul's talking to the Gentiles, right? He's talking to us. This is, this is our story. We knew God. Now, he doesn't mean had a saving relationship. He means they knew God and that they knew that there is a God and that God deserved their worship, their allegiance, and their praise. And that we can't complain for a lack of knowledge about that. I, I, we, we can't blame God for our sin and our rebellion against Him. Though we know, the point is, we don't respond accordingly. While God deserves to be honored and worshiped and glorified and thanked, as Paul says, we have not honored God. Man has not given him things. That's not our natural way of doing things, right? The word there for honor is the Greek word that is also translated glorify. It can be translated either way. Remember, 
But throughout the Bible, we see this. You were created. I was created to glorify God, to honor God, to give him praise. And the creation that is supposed to glorify and honor God has rejected him in our hearts. Man has failed to live out God's purpose for our lives. We are made for God and to worship God, to extol him and all our thoughts and actions and values, but, but we haven't done that. He even goes so far as to say we're ungrateful. Our natural tendency is to, to, to look to ourselves and think, I did this, I earned this, I achieved this, with no thought of God's grace in our lives. We are naturally ungrateful to God. We don't have to learn that. We naturally are wired that way because of our sin nature. He says we're futile in their thinking, he says. That word means useless or worthless. The point is our thoughts are to be centered on God and his will and his purpose for us. But man has rejected God, and therefore our thoughts and lives become futile, disconnected from God's purpose and true reality. Our foolish hearts, even says, are darkened. We have, it's a heart problem. Paul says our rejection of God, our refusing to treat him as God in our lives, it leads to this darkened heart. It's this sick cycle of sin, and our hearts are dark and, and bent towards sin instead of towards worship and glorifying God. Paul is showing them how from the heart we have rejected God as God in our lives. While being created to have God at the very center of our hearts and lives, we have displaced him in that sense. We fail to prize God as God. We fail to treasure God as God. We fail to obey God as God. And we fail to worship God as God. And so our lives are all disoriented because what belongs at the center of our life is the heartbeat of our life is not there. I think I've illustrated with this before, but it's like if I brought a big bicycle wheel up here with the little centerpiece and all the spokes that come out of it. We're wired in such a way is that God is supposed to be at the center and all the little spokes could represent things in our life, our marriages and our jobs and our thoughts and our hobbies and everything about us that makes us us, even our personalities, all supposed to stem from having God at the center of our heart and of our life. And when that works, man, our, our life works the way it's supposed to. Yeah, th things happen. We live in a fallen world. But we live our lives to God's glory, and we live within our purpose. But, but we have, we've displaced God from the center of our lives. We've rejected him. We've rebelled against him. And that's why our lives are such a mess. Our hearts have become so darkened that we sin and become slaves to sin. And then we justify our sin. Then we hide our sin, and we even celebrate our sin. Instead of running to God for forgiveness, we run from God to hide from his judgment. Now, some people reject God by saying God doesn't exist. Well, we can't know for sure God exists. As we mentioned earlier, they hold atheism or agnosticism or some other ism, right? Getting God out of the picture. Some people reject God by saying, I believe in God, but... And they create a moral code for God that aligns with their darkened heart instead of God's word and God's revealed character. And so we begin to pick and choose, and what we end up doing is creating our own God. Sometimes you may hear one say, someone say this, I can't possibly believe in a God that would, and then you fill in the blank, right? I can't believe, possibly believe in a God that would send people to hell. I can't possibly believe in a God that would think that lifestyle or that behavior is a sin. I can't possibly believe in a God, and you can just go down the list. And what they're really saying is, I reject the God of the Bible. That's what we're saying when we do that. We're saying, I get to decide things. God must be like me. God must be like me. There's, there's, because if he's not like me, that must mean something is wrong with me. Nothing can't be wrong with me. Mama told me I'm great, right? I can be anything I want to be. 
heard it from mom and Mr. Rogers and the whole nine yards, but there is something wrong with us. We are broken and we are flawed from the inside. And so when we say, I can't possibly believe, we're rejecting God by saying that. Some reject God by saying, I'm a good person. I believe in God. I believe the Bible. But functionally, we behave like we don't need a Savior. We go to church and we've had spiritual experiences, but we've never really stopped trusting our goodness and our self-righteousness and put our faith and trust in the Redeemer to save us from our sin. People see themselves as basically good in need of a little help from time to time instead of dead in need of life. Sinners in need of forgiveness. See, church people can think the worst sins are the ones we don't commit. The worst sins are the ones we don't struggle with. That's the tendency of the darkened heart with a little bit of religion mixed in. That's what happens. A little religion will leave you broken and make you self-righteous, whereas the gospel breaks our pride and begins to heal us from the inside. Think about this, believer. This is the description of man without Christ here in Romans 1. If we know Christ... Our hearts should be the inverse. We should be characterized by prizing God and honoring God and glorifying God and gratitude towards God and worship of God. There, there's no place in the life of a believer to be apathetic and cold and indifferent towards the things of God. No place for God to be an add-on in our life and no place for an ungrateful, proud outlook on life because our hearts are supposed to be new in Christ Jesus. And the point is, our hearts, due to sin and our natural state, are so dark that we reject God in a myriad of ways. God is not at the center of the human heart and life. He is not who we naturally worship and think. And our lives are, and hearts are meant to have him at the center. However, we've not only rejected him and refused to honor him and refused to give him gratitude, we have, in fact, Paul tells us, replaced him in our hearts. Number three, we have replaced God in our hearts. Verse 22 and 23, Paul says, claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Is this not a good picture of humanity and all of us apart from God's grace? Don't we all kind of think naturally we have it figured out? Did anybody have to teach you as a young man or young woman to think you were wise and had it all figured out and had the world, you know, by the throat and was in control of everything? No. We, we just think that way. We, we, we claim to be wise. We end up showing ourselves to be fools. And life lived apart from God and His revealed will is foolish. The peak of our foolishness is shown in that though we have rejected God and basically said, I'm not going to treat you as God in my life, we then go and worship things that are lesser than, other things other than God. And that shows the peak of our foolishness. He says, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. The word translated glory is that same Greek word that he translated honor before. We're supposed to honor, glorify God, but we've exchanged that. Instead, we glory and honor and, and worship other things. We refuse to give God glory. We reject him. We refuse to see him as glorious. And then we exchange his glory for a lesser glory. And rather than worship the real God, we foolishly choose to worship lesser things. And it just shows our lack of, it's a lack of wisdom. It's, it's foolishness, as Paul calls it, right? It's like with a kid. Um, you can, uh, you can, a kid can demonstrate their foolishness in, in, in different ways. Like, think about money, for instance. If you had a toy that a child really wanted that might be worth two bucks, I can tell you with my kids, 
you could talk them into giving you a $100 bill for that $2 toy, right? And that's just, that's just a sign of their foolishness, that a lack of wisdom in an area. They don't, they don't know better yet. And in our foolishness, with our darkened hearts, in our rebellion, we take the $2 toy instead of God, instead of the $100 in the illustration. It's worse, right, than, than, than anything we can imagine. We've actually exchanged God and all of his glory for idols, even things he made, even if it's the pinnacle of his creation, us. Now, here we're getting to the heart of the issue. The heart of sin is that we have not only rejected God, but replaced him in our hearts. We've not only refused to see his glorious nature, we've not only refused to treasure him, we've also treasured other things in his place. And that is the heart of idolatry, to give to something, to someone, what only belongs to God. And why does this happen? Because we're made for worship. We're made to give honor and to give glory. You and I are hardwired for it, but that virus has so infected us that we don't do it properly and we make idols and we, instead of worshiping and giving glory to God, we do it towards other things. St. Augustine said it this way, our hearts are idol factories. I agree, right? We just, we just produce idols. <coughs> if you look around the world today, we're a world full of worshipers. We have a host of religions. We have Islam and Buddhism and you name it. You go to an unreached people group across the globe and you will find worship there of something. But it's not the God of the Bible. It's usually an idol of some sort. And people sometimes say, well, maybe it's enough that people are just doing their best with what they know. Paul's point is our best isn't good enough. At our best, we're sinners, idolaters, and we're worshiping falsely. You may read this and think, well, this isn't me, this wasn't me, and this isn't my believing friends. I mean, creeping and crawling things. I mean, how ridiculous does this sound? It sounds very unevolved. Well, in Paul's day, a lot of worship oriented around statues and images resembling man, even birds, animals, and creeping things. And their idols would be represented by that gold statue or whatever. We still see this, by the way, in our day, our day and age today. But as one person said, our idols tend to be more mental than metal. It doesn't make them any less idols. Typically, rather than erect a statue to a man, we just worship the man. The chief idol of our culture in Western civilization is self. It's the God of me. It's the individual. That idol manifests itself in various ways by prizing our comfort and our achievement and our pleasure and our security. We prize these things. We sacrifice for these things. We make offerings to these things because we are worshiping ourselves in some form or fashion. And your idol or your neighbor's idol may not be a gold statue or a calf, and it may not even be something that we consider a bad thing. It may just be a good thing that we've made ultimate. It may be a great job, a comfortable and hard-earned lifestyle. It could be a cute little girl or boy that brings a lot of joy, an awesome spouse. But the center of the life and the heart is not God. It's something or someone else, and that is still idolatry. We are not evolved from these people. We are just as devolved as they are into all sorts of sin and idolatry. Back to our wheel illustration. Imagine if you took that, that wheel and you removed that centerpiece out of it and you just decided to stick something else in there and try to reconnect all the spokes, right? And you stuck a tennis ball or some toy or something in there. Is it going to function properly? No, 
It may last for a while, but in the end, it's not going to hold up because that thing that you stuck in there is not designed to hold all those spokes together and make the wheel work that way. And that's what we do. We don't just say, I'm not going to worship God. We say, I am going to worship this. Paul's point is simple. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all of our sin and idolatries and our sinfulness and our natural truth-suppressing ways. We have, we, have, we have made ourselves worthy of the wrath of God. And God's not to blame. We suppress his truth in our hearts and lives, so God is just in his wrath towards men. We are without excuse. God's the one who's just, not us. He's revealed himself. We have rejected him. We have replaced him. And no one in this room and no one in this neighborhood or in this city will, will stand before God being judged for their sin and have an excuse. None of us will have an, a case. None of us will, will be able to make a case before God. And we all know we've all rejected and replaced him. And God's condemnation of us is just. And the, this is bad news, right? <clears throat> but in his goodness, God has chosen in his goodness and love to do something about it. Remember Romans 1.16 last week? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those that believe, the Jew first and the Gentile, for anybody that puts their faith in Christ. The gospel is the power of God to, to save us, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus has come, and his life was perfectly oriented towards the Father. His life was not characterized by unrighteousness and ungodliness, but righteousness and godliness. He didn't suppress the truth. In fact, he says, I am the truth. He has come, God the Son, and he has made God more known and revealed him in a way that creation never could. God in the flesh has come to us to show us exactly what God is like. That's what God has done in his goodness for us. Jesus reveals God in a way that the natural creation never could. And he came to die for our sins, to bear the punishment, the wrath of God we deserve. And be raised from the dead so that we can be saved from God's wrath. And only when we have turned from our sin and trusted in Jesus as our boss, our Lord and Savior, can we truly begin to worship God instead of idols. Jesus gives us new hearts that are reoriented towards God. Hearts that love God. Hearts that worship God. Hearts that honor and thank God. And that's the hope of the good news of the gospel. That God sent his son to die for us and be raised from the dead. That, that's the hope of the gospel. That we can be made new in Jesus. And that while Romans 1 is our story, it's not the end of the story. And believer, when you see ungratefulness in your heart, a lack of praise and worship for God in your heart, a lack of desire to orient your life around God and his word and his will, you need to kill that sin and make war on it. That's the old you. It's no small thing to not have God at the center of our hearts and lives. It's the epitome of what sin is. And we all need the gospel. I need it, you need it, and our neighbors need the gospel. And this text shows us just how urgent the situation is. Paul's point is that all of us need this gospel, this good news, and we need to be burdened by the lostness of those around us. Your, your neighbor doesn't need to be converted to your political views or your various tribes of culture, your neighbor needs the gospel, needs the gospel. If we were as passionate about convincing of our neighbors of some things, as if we'd be that, just that, a measure of that towards convincing them of, to believe the gospel, how many more people we might we reach with the gospel? God help us to be more concerned about making Christians than Democrats or Republicans, for goodness sake. People need the gospel. 
And listen, if that gets in the way of the gospel, we need to hush and talk more about the gospel. That's possible. The urgency here is critical. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. And people need Jesus above all things. Now, that brings us to why we're doing Who's Your One? With partnering with churches all over our nation in this. And you've got a card there. And it's your response card. It says, My One, right? And you see the verse there. We are ambassadors for Christ. This is from Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Who's God making His appeal through? He's making it through you and me. That's God's chosen method for extending the gospel to people. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our ministry. That is our mission here at this church. And as every believer has this as our call. And, and so what this card is for is for you to write down people in your sphere of influence. And there's five lines on there. Think of three, four, five people in your sphere of influence that you know are far from God, that need to hear the gospel, and write their names down. But we're asking, think about one person and ask God to just impress upon your heart one person that's going to be your person this year. Hopefully, you share the gospel with everybody on the list. But there's this one person, man, they're getting multiple invitations. You're building the relationship. You're sharing the gospel. You're praying for them. Who is your one? You say, well, I don't even know if I, I know one person to root down on the list. Well, maybe you need to take the next couple of weeks and pray God to begin to open doors for you to, to make friends with some lost people that need to hear the gospel. And then I want you to take these cards. These are not for you to keep. You, you, you can take a picture of it. You can, you can write it on your bulletin. You can get another card like this that's white that's downstairs and write it on there. Find a way to put it in your mind. But this is a card for you to turn into us so that we can partner with you in prayer. And when you came in this morning, you saw a wall that we've created down there for us to partner together in prayer for, for, the, for these people. What we're asking is for you just to write their first name down. We don't need to know their whole name. Just, you know, Bob, Jill, Sally, Sue, whatever. You just write the first name on there. We don't need your name. And then we're going to place them on that wall. And you can take it down there and place it yourself starting this morning. You can lay it on the table and we'll place it later. You can place it in the offering plate this morning and we'll place it later. You can bring it back next week. But we're going to put, and when you walk by that wall, every now and then just stop, pick a couple of names, and as you head to lunch, pray for those people. And it's a way for us to partner together to pray for people. This wall will represent all the people we have in contact with as a church body throughout the week that we need to be sharing the gospel with. And we want to pray with you about that this morning. Now, here's the invitation. First of all, do you need to believe the gospel and be reconciled to God and be saved from his wrath? The Bible says if you'll turn from your sin and embrace Jesus by faith as Lord and Savior, you can be saved from the wrath of God. Do you need to pray for people who need to hear the gospel, maybe from your lips? Do you need to share the gospel? Who do you need to share the gospel with? That's our invitation this morning. Here's one way you can respond. If you need to talk to someone about following Christ and Becoming a believer, I would love to talk with you about that. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing. I can pray with you about anything during this time, about your person. Uh, if, you, if you've got questions about being a Christian, or come to me after the service. I'll hang around. Let's talk. Let's pray.